everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 120. So glad you could join us. Um, today's guest is David Kirby. He'll be with us here in just a little bit, about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. Uh, we just do this so we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Click the bell for notifications if they still do that. Leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever you can do. Um, find some way to tell the, the bosses over in Silicon Valley that you care about poetry and what we do here. And then they'll show it to more people, which is always what we're trying to do is get more people um, enjoying and, and participating in the, uh, the practice of poetry. And now we like to start with Poetry Spawn Live every week. And this week we have a special uh, poem and two special guests. Um, we have both Suzanne Smith and uh, translator of the poem, um, uh, Peter Migley. And they're both on the line here for the first time. The first time we've had a, a conference call here on the Rattlecast. But let's talk to uh, Suzanne first. But hey, how are you guys both doing? And um, so to start, let's um, just explain a little bit about what the, the background of the poem was and what inspired you to write it. Um, Tim, there's, there's really a lot going on um, around the South African coast at the moment. I'm living in East London, which is a small um, city uh, at the uh, eastern coast of, of South Africa. And we have um, this huge the company Shell that is in at this moment as we speak um, entering the waters and um, on its way to East London and to the Wild Coast, which is a quite a pristine um, area of of the marine environment. Um, they intend eventually to to do some fracking, so they are on their way for explorations. And the, the further I read about it, um, the more emotional I actually felt about it because uh, they are going to do some seismic blasting, which means that 48 air cannons would be blasting every 10 seconds, 24-7 oh, wow. for six months. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even realize. Like, that, I, I that sort of is, skimmed the article. It, that, that's terrible. Yeah, that's not even it's a terrible. small thing. That is awful. Um, and, and every blast, let's just make this clear, every blast is in excess of 200 decibels. Wow. That's a, they, I can't they say believe even 250. That. Wow. That, that's so much worse than I thought. I, I, I was imagining no, no, that, you know, the problem was that they would start drilling and having oil spills and, and, in addition to the sounding. But wow. Six months of that, that's that's so destructive Six to months. all the wildlife there. It's incredible. And, and um, from what I can read, it is not only just the mammals, the whales and the dolphins that, that's going to suffer from it. It is, yeah, the, the influence of those kind of um, sound waves would carry many, many sea miles and it would... The devastation would definitely be there. Um, so many of the fish species rely on on hearing and sound for navigation, for for really for survival. Mm -hmm. And and um, yeah, it is just it's unthinkable what is being done. And and the other thing is it's been um, sort of. Uh, not shown in the press, really. It was covered up a little bit. There was some kind of underhand 
thing going on with the government and um, now they are on their way. They're already here. They are starting 1st of December. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Well, I hope that somehow there's some kind of, you know, enough public pressure for some kind of injunction and they can legally stop it or something like that. Because um, that's just that's just awful. Um, and, and so you were you're sort of inspired to write this poem, which you f- posted first on your Facebook page, um, according to Peter. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Um, it was written in, in a bit of anger. And uh, re- usually I take a long time to polish my poems. But this time I actually just poured out my my feelings and, and my anger and um, the frustration of, you know, Maybe just our voice as poems, as poets, and and we as the voice of the na- of nature and of the sea creatures, that that could reach somebody's ears. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, um, what happened with with Peter picking it up and the translation, and so the the, the has been quite a bit of a response and. I'm, I'm very grateful for that response. Yeah, well, well, the emotion of this poem just sings through it, and I'm so glad we could share it with people. Do you want to read it in the original language, and then we'll have Peter come and read it in the, in English, and we'll we'll talk to Peter a little bit after that. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm reading it in Afrikaans, which is my mother tongue. Um, the name of the poem is Uslapje in Van Buurden. Aan die hoof uitvoerende bestuurder van Royal Dutch Shell, namens die seelewe en die waters van die wilde kus. Hoe slaap jy, Ben, van die buurden? Hoe slaap jy in die haag, met die beels van stervende walvisse wat dier jou drome blaas? Hoe kussen jy jou oore, Ben, van buurden, ten die heroute van water, se priemende krete, Hoe voering jy met glansbrokaat en dichte fluweel die aanslag van decibels, die kolkende, skeurende nagelwe van angst, die uit mekaar van die nietigste ongewerweldes, van hompe walvis, van buike en finne van dolfijne, die ontploffing van hoormembraan, wat oor duisende seemuile tyd en plek en oorlewing moes navigeer, die klikke, die gromme, die polse, die klappe van onderwatertaal. Hoe slaap jy? Hoe slaap jy in die koninklijke Nederlandse shell, in die arms van nieuwkolonialisme, jou olie bedruip die handpalms van Gwede en Travante, jou mond blink by die feestmaal van koningsgarnale en kreef. Hoe slaap jy, Ben van Beurden? Hoe slaap jy, hoe vou jy jou kinders toe? Hoe sis jy jou kleinkinders? Hoe lees jy vir hulle stories oor die aarde wat eens mooi was en heel voel jou? Hoe slaap jy? Hoe sit jy aan by jou eie tafel, Ben van Beurden, met die lichaampies van jou kinders nekies en voorarm, voorarmpies en boukies en magies en duikies opgesnaam? verbroos in een sausie. Het is immers jy, Ben van Beurden, wat die brood breek en eet. Suzanne, thanks so much for reading that. I always love listening to poems in, in the original language by the original author. It's just wonderful to hear the music of that um, and, and let the, the sounds kind of wash over you. Uh, Peter, do you want to take over and read the English version now? 
<laughs> All right. How do you sleep, Ben van Bearden? How do you sleep, Ben van Bearden? How do you sleep in The Hague with the cries of dying whales blowing through your dreams? How do you cushion your ears, Ben van Bearden, against the piercing cries of water's heralds? How do you hem with glistening brocade and thick velvet the onslaught of decibels, the whirling broken aftershocks of anxiety, the desiccation of the smallest invertebrates? of chunks of whale, of wombs of dolphins, the explosion of tympanic membranes that navigated survival across thousands of nautical miles, the clicks and growls, the pulses and the snaps of subaquatic tongues. How do you sleep, Ben van Bierden? In the Royal Dutch shell, in the arms of neocolonialism, your oil basting the palms of Gwede and his cronies, your mouth glistening from the feast of giant shrimp and lobster. How do you sleep, Ben van Bierden? How do you sleep? How do you tuck your children in at night? How do you comfort your grandchildren? How do you read them stories about the earth that was beautiful once upon a time and whole before you? How do you sleep? How do you sit at your table, Ben van Bierden, with the bodies of your children, neatly carved into forearms and rounds, thighs and silver side, doused in a delicate gravy? It is after all you, Ben van Bierden, who breaks the bread, who eats. Yeah, just a powerful, powerful poem. I'm so glad you could translate that, Peter, and share that with us, that you had the thought to do so. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about how you came upon the poem? And, and, and I think you, you um, do translations generally. Um, um, so it's something that you usually do. Um, so, so what was it that, that drew you to the poem and made you want to translate it so quickly that you could publish it on Poets Respond? Well, you know, when I saw it, I, uh, I knew I had to do it. First of all, Shell has a terrible reputation for its desecration of human rights and natural the natural world in Africa. You only need to look at Nigeria as, as a prime example of, of what it has done. Um, and this is not the first onslaught on the wild coast area by mining companies, by oil companies. This is, this is a perpetual battle. So I felt I had to take it up. And it is the landscape of my youth. I grew up not too far inland from that area myself. And I know the affected area very, very well. So it it just hit home. And I yes, I translate as a matter of course. This is, Afrikaans is my parental tongue. I grew up in a bilingual household. So it it just comes naturally to me when I read poems in other languages to, to translate them on the fly as I go. I, I love seeing what the words do in it, when you push them through other languages to to get to to English. They shift, they grow, they they morph. It, translation is a wonderful tool. Yeah, they do. And so, so the Afrikaans language is um is derived from Dutch, right? So it's it's interesting. There's that a few sort of cognate words that that appear, but then others that not. So the so to keep the um to keep the rhythm and the pace. Um, through um, a lot of different sounds is an interesting thing. How much do you think about how the original sounds when you're doing a translation? 
Very much so. Um, if you can't translate the, the words word for word, you've got to listen to the, the alliteration. You've got to listen to the, to the sound it makes orally. Uh, Afrikaans is in many ways a very oral language. You, you have to hear it to hear the melodies. And so I work hard to replicate that in, in, in any kind of translation. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you did. It was a great idea to send this. Um, and it was just a highlight of my weekend to come across this poem. Um, so thank you to Suzanne for writing it and uh, to Peter, you for translating it and sharing it with us. And, and thanks, Suzanne, for staying up late. It's like 3 a.m. where you are. So we really appreciate that, too. <laughs> thank you very much. It was absolutely worth the while. And I hope if I reach somebody and, you know, with that metaphor of um, the way of, we are guardians of the earth. Um, and if we don't speak out, who will speak? So yeah. it's, well, it's yeah. our children. We well, have really to well speak. said. I'm hoping that Ben Van Buren reads this poem, which it's surprising when we publish a poem with someone's name in it, they almost always do. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. I mean, he probably won't I, I say hope, anything, but um, hope, but the odds are I not that, that small, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's happened many times with political people where you, uh, they, I get a message from an aide or something. But anyway, I'm so glad that you could join us and share uh, share these poems. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yep, have a good right. night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay, so that was a special feature. It was really nice to get to talk to both of those poets, um, uh, Peter um, uh, Peter Mickley, the translator, and and Suzanne Smith. And now we're going to move to our featured guest for today. And as I mentioned, it's David Kirby. Put on... This is David Kirby. And I'm going to put on a little bumper music, and we will be right back. Hey, welcome back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is David Kirby. Uh, David is the Robert O. Lawton Distinguished Professor of English at Florida State University. He's received many honors for his work, including fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. And his work appears all over the place, Best American Poetry, Pushcart Prizes, including a poem and rattle that was in one or the other, I can't remember which. Um, Kirby is the author of numerous books, including um, Tin House on Boulevard Street, New and Selected Poems, which was a finalist for the 2007 National Book Award in Poetry. Um, his Little Richard, The Birth of Rock and Roll, was named one of the book list's top 10 black history nonfiction books of 2010. And the Times Literary Supplement called it a hymn of praise to the emancipated power of nonsense. I love that description. Um, his most recent books are Help Me, Information, which we have right here and the knowledge where poems come from and how to write them, which is also right here. And here he is, David Kirby. Hello, David. How you doing? Oh, hello there, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Hello, everybody out there in Rattle Land. Yeah, it's just it's such a pleasure to have you on. I mean, I've just loved your work for so long, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad you could join us. I love Rattle. I tell you, it's the, it's the only one I recommend to my students. You know, there's so many uh, different... Uh, poetry services magazines out there and i just say go to rattle man that's that that's the one uh, you know if, if you got a gold mine don't don't go start looking for a 10 mine or a, a ntf mine or or any other kind just you know start digging <laughs> well i really appreciate the shout out you gave to rattle in the um, intro to the knowledge which i have to say yeah. i i love this book so much we'll talk about it a little more later um but okay but uh, but let's start out with a poem um, I think you want to okay. read I Wish I Were a Cannibal first, which is a good way to kick off any program. 
I don't know why not. Unless this 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 will clear out the audience if they're afraid uh, <laughs> of being gobbled up, uh, they they can head for the door. But uh, actually, I intend for them to like that experience. I wish I were a cannibal because if I were a cannibal, I could cook you and put you on a plate and eat you up. But I'd be a magical cannibal. Cannibal, so you'd come back tomorrow and I'd prepare you in a new way and eat you up all over again. Or wait. Not a magic cannibal, but a cannibal who lives on a magic island where people who are crazy about each other just keep devouring the other person every day and then do it again and again and again. Today, I think I'd like to roll you gently in flour, then dip you in an egg wash and some breadcrumbs and slide you into a skillet in which I have melted butter and olive oil and cook you for three minutes on one side and two on the other and put a slice of cheese on you and stick you in the oven just long enough to melt the cheese. I'd like to make a carrot souffle out of you, or a sandwich, but not just any sandwich. One of those jumbo hot dogs the Chileans call a completo, and for good reason, because it's slathered in tomato and pickle and guacamole and mayonnaise and sauerkraut and whatever else you want to put on it. A completo has to have a lot of toppings on it, or else it's not completo. Or a Primanti Brothers sandwich from the famed Pittsburgh deli of that name that consists of capicola and provolone topped with french fries and coleslaw and tomato slices on sourdough. Oh, wait, I know, the Monte Cristo, which is truly the Cadillac of sandwiches, and that you make it by putting turkey and ham on Dijon-coated white bread, which you coat with a well-beaten egg and cook until brown on both sides and then sprinkle with powdered sugar and serve with red currant jelly alongside for dipping, though you'd be delicious dipped in anything. I'm certainly not going to turn you into a strawberry pretzel salad. It's not even a salad, though also delicious. I'd like to smother you, by which I mean not put a pillow over your face, but first make a roux out of flour and vegetable oil the way they do in Cajun country and add onion and celery and garlic and chicken broth and then immerse you and cook you on the lowest heat possible until you emerge tender, tender. Listen to me. How could you possibly be more tender than you are now or sweeter? Notice that I haven't mentioned dessert. Why would I? You're sweeter than 10 desserts, 100 if I ate you and dessert both, I couldn't eat anything for the next three days except insulin lollipops. I wish you were a shot of whiskey so I could toss you down my throat or a bottle of beer so I could chug you on a hot day or a glass of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo so I could sip you slowly in the presence of some of the yummy dishes I described above, even though that means I'd be consuming you twice, which, come to think of it, is not the worst idea I've had lately. I wish you were a cigar so I could stick one end of you in my mouth and light the other. I wish I were a cigar as well so we could both go up and smoke. Let's send smoke signals to everyone on the mainland. We'll tell all the other lovers to join us. When you toks, lovers, or should it just be us? Romantic dinner for two or Bruegelesque banquet with dogs and chicken and, and big, thick-bodied pink Dutch peasant types larking about to the tune of a drum and pipe band and dice, of course. Peasants love to gamble. Who doesn't? Why, the first time I saw you, you were doubling down at the blackjack table, and I myself am hardly averse to a hand of Baccarat or Chemin de Fer. You hear that? Dinner bell. I think I'll marinate you for two hours or maybe overnight and mm, lemon and uh, garlic and mm, thyme and... Tim, there's no period on the end of that poem because I just want it to go on and on and on. Well, that's the thing that um, so this is the cover for Help Me Information. Everybody's seeing at home now. Yeah. Um, another just great book by David Kirby. Um, that's the thing about your work is that it feels like you have so much fun while writing, 
And it feels like there's a sort of a lack of fun in poetry today. And you're just like the antidote to that. Um, it feels like you're, I don't know if you like think of yourself as like a maximalist, but you just throw so much like fun stuff. And it seems like you're just like, just like having fun with it and letting yourself go and, and having a good time as you write. Um, how much of that just to start off, how much of that is true? Like how much are you sitting there? Do you really, do you agonize while you're writing or do you just, just, just crack yourself up? Oh, uh, no, I just, I just kind of smile and look out the window. And, you know, it goes without saying that uh, each one of those bits, each one of those images there, uh, you know, it probably took me, uh, uh, you know, an hour to locate it and an hour to, to uh, shape it, even though it was maybe just a line and a half. But that, that said, once you have, a, a, you know, a template, once you have a bunch of words on the page, then you can start messing them around. So um, people, uh, you know, a, a question I get a lot in Q&A is how long does it take you to write a poem? And I say, well, um, two years or half an hour, depending on what, what you mean or what you want to know, because it, it might take me that long to, to accumulate everything and kind of get it. You get, get it organized, and then I, then I just I just fly at it. And then the trick there, of course, is to take out the uh, the seams, iron out all the wrinkles, so that I just go from a sandwich to another kind of sandwich to a cigar to a Dutch peasant dance, um, you know, at light speed. And uh, I think that's where the fun comes from. And yes, I'm I'm very much a I'm very much pro fun. Uh, <laughs> like I like fun. Uh, I uh, and uh, I think you might have. Put your finger on something when you say that uh, there's a general funlessness to uh, to a lot of poetry these days. And I've had actually had people wag their finger uh, at me and and, uh, and say, you know, don't don't do that. You know, there's so much um, that, that's troubling this poor, sad, sick world of ours. And and I say, uh, I know. And you know, I, I write to, I, I write checks to all the all the best uh, charities. But when it comes to writing. Poems, you know, I'm going to do something that I think the, the people will like. And I bet, Tim, uh, like a lot of uh, poets, I get asked a lot, a lot, a lot about uh, specific choices. Why is this poem formatted this way? Why uh, are a lot of your poems set in Europe? Why uh, do you write about your wife so much? And uh, you know, the answer is real simple. It's people like it. <laughs> Interesting. If they, if they if they like it, they're going to get more. But uh, yeah, I, th I think, and um, you know, we, I've talked about this before. Uh, I, I do have a certain kind of kind of a signature poem, which I wish I were a cannibal. Um, it, it's like that, you know. It's, uh, it's I showed that to somebody once, and they said that you've got the whole world in this poem, and and this, in fact, you've got the whole world in a lot of your poems. And that, I, you know, that, that's not the worst thing anybody has ever said. But uh, a few years back, I, I started uh, feeling a certain discomfort uh, reading poems by some of my favorite poets. And, and uh, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Then I realized they were still my favorite poets. They were still writing great poems, but they were kind of writing a version of the same good poem over and over again. So lately I've, I've been writing a bunch of little three inchers. I've also written some ones that, uh, you know, the Whitman or the Ginsburg estate might sue me over because they're, you know, they're 10 pages long and, and they just, you know, they don't quite look like the me that was in that last poem or probably most of the poems there. So, um, so, you know, it, you, uh, 
you 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 run out of uh, gas if you just keep doing the same thing. So I'm I'm, I'm trying to shake it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting to hear. Um, let's talk a little bit about the knowledge. I'll put it on the screen uh, so people at home can okay. see this book. Um, this is David okay. Kirby, The Knowledge. It is a big, thick book where poems come from and how to write them. It's from um, um, fliplearning.com is the place you can find it. Oh, you can find it on Amazon mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I have to say, it is just a, you know, it, it's a sort of a, an audacious title to um, call something The Knowledge. <laughs> but... Uh, I- but I had to say though, yeah, it, it fulfills itself. Yeah, I have that in my biography. <laughs> yeah, I have that in my in my uh, biography now because you know you have to, when you get a poem in a magazine, people say, "What are your latest publications?" And I always say, a "Book of poems called Help Me Information," and a, a, a textbook modestly entitled "The Knowledge: Where Poems Come From and, and How to Fight uh, and How to Find." And uh, I, I hope I hope that irritates people enough that they'll say, "Well, I, you know, let's let's see what this." Uh, uh, vainglorious idiot is up to, and they and they tear into it, and they find out that there's a rather specific reference, which uh, is uh, uh, you know, I, I was in London uh, back when people could actually travel, and uh, in London you see these men and women on uh, motorbikes with uh, street atlases bungee corded onto the handlebars, and they are they're, they're tra- uh, trainee cab drivers acquiring the knowledge, which means uh, the, the, the pathway through London, so that if you hop into your cab in uh, Leicester Square and you say, take me to 90B Great Percy Street, the guy will nod for a second and say, right you are, sir, and take off, not even have to GPS it. You know, you have to, you have to know it cold. So, uh, so really, it's a kind of a geographical guide to the, uh, to the landscape of, uh, of uh, poetry. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad you find some... Uh, Good things. It, it contains every damn thing I know about the, the art and science of poetry writing, that's for sure. Yeah, well, it's always interested me how, um, you know, poets seem to sort of, there does seem to be a knowledge. Like, we, like different poets talk about it in different ways, but there's a lot in common about the ways that poems are created. And, and it feels like it does contain, like if, if someone were to um, want to find a book that substitutes like a writing program, it feels like this book could actually do that, which is really impressive. Um, and there's so many just great pieces of advice too. Like, like I, I love the um, the uh, the formula for a poem that you make, which is um, um, beginning B plus uh, B plus T B plus equals, T equals P. P. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, beginning yeah. plus time equals poem, and then you go um, time squared equals better poem. And I think that's just uh, that's just funny how it works. Um, and and it's true. Yeah. The, well, uh, Flip Learning is, uh, is is a company that only publishes textbooks by people who have won uh, undergraduate teaching awards. And I've got a couple of those. So it, it really is intended to be, uh, I mean, uh, hey, if you're out there, make it a class assignment. You know, I need the money. But, uh, you know, I, I want individuals to buy it. And I want them to, uh, you know, think of it as a kind of desert island uh, textbook. I'll tell you, Tim, um, Flip Learning contacted me uh in in the summer of um uh in, in last summer in, in uh in uh, early, late april actually and they said well this is what we do we'd like you to write a textbook and i said oh i i don't know it's i don't know that, that would really boost my career at this point it's a lot of work and so forth and so they said, oh that's too bad because we were going to give you this big advance and we we're going to pay you some pretty generous royalties and i said oh you know what i do think i have a <laughs> textbook in me actually and uh I, I kid you not, Tim. I wrote this 444-page book 
in about six weeks because uh, when I got off the phone with the flip learning guy, I you know put my chin on my like Rodin's thinker, and I realized, man, you've got uh, you know decades and decades of prompts, syllabi, uh, inspirational speeches, uh, you know exercise sheets you've passed out to class. So again, it was it was kind of like. I wrote a 444 page book, kind of like the way I might write a 44 line poem, which is just accumulate. And the thing is, this was actually kind of easier because I had all the material accumulated and I just stitched it together. So it it really does have a kind of a, I hope it has a classroom sound because it did really come out of of me up there in my faded blue jeans and my uh, Metallica uh, t-shirt, you know, shaking my fist at students and saying, this is how you write a Sestina. You know, it's, it's really uh, uh, <clears throat> pedagogical that way, classroom driven. Yeah, and, and just the, the, the voice and the humor as you go through, it's so, it feels like I'm, we're talking to you too at the same time. Um, it's just, it's yeah. just a great read, so I can't recommend it enough. Um, but we'll talk about you know, more topics within there, but let's hear another poem, um, so keep the poems coming too. Oh, okay, and, and since uh, you've deceived uh, the audience by telling them what a funny guy I am. I want to read a poem that um, is, uh, there's a kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I kind of keep a, so sort of an, uh, an, an inventory of maybe six or seven poem types that I write. So I'll say, uh, oh, I've written, uh, uh, you know, my wife, Barbara, who's a transcendent American poet herself, Barbara Hemby, um, does uh, uh, poetry and fiction, and uh, and the kind of poem like I wish I, I were a cannibal. She calls that a, a Dave Kirby poem. Shorter one she calls Jack Gilbert poems for obvious reasons. And this is a kind of called big opera poem, and I think it'll uh, tell you why. It's um, it's a um, poem called Europeans Wrapping Knickknacks. It's on on page twenty one of. Uh, of your uh, copy of Help Me Information. Uh, and what happened was, uh, well, three things. Uh, I know you know that a lot of these poems are braids, and I take different subject matters and braid them together. And uh, uh, you've got my formula down. Uh, B plus T equals P. Beginning, which is always small, plus time equals poem. My beginning here was uh, watching people in a store. Barbara had bought a, uh, a Christmas, I think she bought a Christmas ornament in maybe Florence or Venice, you know, a very delicate thing. And they were wrapping and wrapping and adding, uh, adding all this, uh, you know, tissue and God knows what. And uh, I thought, I've got to make something out of that process, which is pretty artistic. And uh, so that was one element. Uh, Henry James wrote a very snooty article about, about the cultural insufficiency about uh, of the U.S. and how Europe is so much uh, classier in that way. And so that was kind of floating out there. And then I wrote an article uh, uh, that contains a, an amazing story you're about to hear in the New York Times about uh, a young woman's marriage. So it goes like this. Europeans wrapping knickknacks. So meticulous, aren't they? They take such care that I am ashamed for my country, that impatient farm boy, that factory hand with the sausage fingers. First, there's the fragile object itself, vase, jewel, ornament, then tissue, stiff paper, bubble wrap, 
tissue again, tape, a beautiful bag made for something more like gift wrap than the stern brown stuff we use here in the States. And then the actual carry bag that has a little string handle, but which is in many ways the loveliest part of the package, except for the object you can barely remember. It's been so long since you've seen it. In America, we just drop your trinket in a sack and hand it to you. Oh, that's right. We have cars in this country, whereas Stefano or Natalie has to elbow his or her way down a crowded street and take the bus or subway. You get in the car, put the bag on the seat next to you, and off you go back to your bungalow in Centralia or Eau Claire. Of course, this doesn't mean you're culturally inferior to Jacques or Magdalena, just because, as Henry James said in his essay on Hawthorne, we have no sovereign in our country, no court, no aristocracy, no high church, no palaces or castles or manors, no thatched cottages, no ivied ruins. No, we just do things differently here. Whereas Pedro and Ilsa take the tram or trolley, you have your car, and now you're on your way home to Sheboygan or Dearborn, probably daydreaming as you turn the wheel, no more aware of your surroundings than 53-year-old Michael Stepien was in 2006 when he was walking home after work in Pittsburgh, which is when a teenager robbed him and shot him in the head. And as Mr. Stepien lay dying, his family decided to accept the inevitable, said his daughter Jenny, and donate his heart to one Arthur Thomas of Lawrenceville, New Jersey, who was within days of dying. That's one thing you can say about life in the U.S. We have great medicine. Mr. Thomas recovered nicely after the transplant, and he and the Stepians kept in touch, swapping holiday cards and flowers on birthdays. And then Jenny Stepian gets engaged to be married and thinks, who will walk me down the aisle? No cathedrals in America, says Henry James. No abbeys, no little Norman churches, no Oxford, or Eaton or Harrow, no sporting class, no Epsom, nor Ascot. Some such list as that might be drawn up of the absent things in American life, says Henry James, the effect of which upon an English or a French imagination would probably, as a general thing, be appalling. Guess worse, James then says, the natural effect in the almost lurid light of such an indictment would be that if these things are left out, everything is left out. But then the American knows that a good deal remains. What is it that remains? That is his secret. As the wedding approaches, Jenny Stepien thinks, book the venue, check. Order the cake, got it. And then she thinks it would be incredible to have her father there one way or another. So she writes Mr. Thomas, who says, yes, of course, he'll be happy to walk her down the aisle. Though when he says he's afraid his emotions might get the better of him, Jenny tells him hers might too, but not, not to worry, because I'll be right there with you. When they finally meet, Arthur Thomas suggests that Jenny grip his wrist where the pulse is strongest. I thought that would be the best way for her to feel close to her dad, he says. That's her father's heart beating. At the wedding, Jenny is photographed with her hand on Arthur's chest. They dance together. The guests mingle. The two families vow to meet up somewhere down the road. Jenny and her husband start their new life together. And Arthur Thomas returns to his home in Lawrenceville. I felt wonderful about bringing her dad's heart to Pittsburgh that day, he says. If I had to, I would have walked. Talk about a knickknack. What must it be like to have someone else's heart in your chest, taken from his body years earlier and placed in yours, 
beating there now as it beat for its owner. You were days from death, and now you can do anything you want. In your new life, you are a citizen of no country, but of the world. It's your heart, your secret. Most days, you don't even know it's there. So I'm getting good at reading that one uh, in, in, in public. Uh, you know, you, you're not supposed to laugh at your own jokes. You're not supposed to weep at your own uh, sorrow. But uh, that, that it, uh, as I say, it kind of gets to me. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm introduced often as, as David Kirby, the comic poet, or David Kirby, the guy who'll make you you know, scream with laughter. And uh, I, I hope so, too. But uh, I think people just say that because what you said earlier, you know, there's, there's not a lot of fun. Uh, in a lot of poetry, uh, and and so you know, if, if you are a funny person, you kind of kind of get uh, you know stuck with that. But you know, a lot, there are a lot worse things to be stuck with. <laughs> yeah, well, it's humor that that has a, a point and a meaning. Um, yeah. I should say, if anybody has any questions, um, please leave them in the chat windows, either on YouTube or Facebook, and I will pass them along to David. Um, but I want to talk about these, this braid form. That that poem is in your braid form. And it's one of the things that I see a lot just reading those notes. You know, we have the notes below, beneath poems. And so people, uh, well, every submission has a note. And sometimes they're really interesting. Uh, but a lot yeah. of times they say, I want to write braids like David Kirby. That's one of the, the few, like, <laughs> form tied to a poet type things there are. Um, so talk a little bit about this braid form. Like, how did you develop it? Is it always three subjects? And if so, why three? It seems like it when I think about it, but maybe I only notice one's three. Three is, three is pretty good. You know, uh, Billy Collins has that famous poem, The Lanyard. And, uh, you know, it's about something that we all did when we went away to camp. Uh, usually it's kind of patriotic. They give you a, a you know long strip of uh, a yellow plastic, uh, white plastic and blue plastic and, and red plastic. And, you, you know, you put the red over the blue, the blue over the white and so forth and so on. And you just keep doing it over and over. And suddenly you have something that, you know, it would hold up, an, uh, you know, like a, an iron, 800-pound iron safe. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's a very strong uh, uh, concoction, a very, a very uh, strong formula. Uh, the, the trick is, is to find out three things that don't really seem to go together. I mean, red and white and blue are pretty, pretty uh, you know, optically are, are, are pretty much opposites. But uh, find, find three things that that go together and, uh, and, and kind of nudge them, uh, that way. And, uh, you know, the great thing about having another poet in the house is that, uh, sometimes I ask these things to Barbara and she says, you, you know, you haven't, you haven't quite made the connections yet. And I say, okay, let me go back and, and, uh, and do that. And, uh, you know, I, I do write, uh, one-off, uh, poems, you know, that go beginning, middle and end. But, um, Again, people like it. Uh, it's you know, it's it's almost a uh, it's almost a, a journalistic uh, form. If you, if you read an article in the New York Times about or you know uh, an opinion piece on the editorial page about how to how to uh, you know the problem of with lead paint uh, in the projects, say, it, you know, it, it's it it'll start out with little Jimmy uh, picking uh, paint flakes off the wall and eating them. And then it'll go into, you know, where, you know, well, how the ancient Romans uh, put lead in their paint because it makes it stick to the wall. And, and uh, you know, the Monsanto Corporation or whoever it is, whoever makes this stuff, they've been warned and, and uh, told not to do it. And, but, you know, there are ways around it or they, in fact, have come up with a substitute for the lead. But and in the end, it always goes back to little, little Jimmy sitting there on the, on the floor uh, and, and eating the stuff and not, not knowing any better. And you've forgotten about it by that point. But when you come around to it again, you see it differently. You know, it's, it's stronger and it's, uh, 
and it's more resonant. I, th- I think the uh, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm very happy to give away my uh, trade secrets because uh, it's not that I want everybody to write like me, but uh, I want I want everybody to have as much fun as <laughs> as I do. And the, the trade secret here uh, is is simple. It's just go there. Uh, Barbara and I went to see James Taylor one time in a, in a concert. He sang a Sweet Baby James, which is his signature song. It made him famous uh, right at the beginning of his career. And that song begins with a cowboy out in the desert. Uh, and the second verse, uh, he's on a frozen turnpike uh, outside of Stockbridge, uh, Massachusetts. So as he's walking out of the, uh, the uh, concert, I say, hey, Barbara, how did, how did James Taylor uh, get from being a cowboy in the desert to a guy in a car and uh, on a frozen turnpike? And she said, he just went there. <laughs> Yeah. I said, oh, okay. Thanks for clearing that up. You know, so uh, so uh, sometimes it seems like the the process is so laborious. My God, how am I going to get from this part of the poem to that part? Of the poem? Just go there, and the, you know, trust the reader. The the reader will make the connection. And, and so for the different stories, like the story about the heart um, and Arthur, like did you read that somewhere and then have that like aside until you found the other subjects that would fit with it? And then you said, oh, let me pull out that Arthur story. And then, um, or how, how did you, how do you find the things? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I make all my students keep a bits journal and the, the rule of the bits journal is, uh, it's anything goes and, and, uh, an even more important rule is never censor yourself. So if you hear somebody say something on the sidewalk, um, you know, jot it down. If you see something interesting on the wall of a, a stall in a bathroom, jot it down. If you, Professor says something goofy, or you remember something your uncle Max said at the Thanksgiving table two years ago. Jot it down, and and uh, you know, with, I've I've uh, heard that Whitman did this, and if he didn't do it, uh, and and you know, don't don't tell me because I, I like the story too much. They said that Whitman would just write scraps on a piece of paper, and he had a kind of a coffer, or sort of a good sized box that you might put personal effects in, and he would throw them in there. And then when the when, when it was hard to to close the coffer, uh, he would say. Uh, taking these things out and sequencing them. So I always have, um, you know, five, six, 20 pages of, of bits to look at and you know, tons of archival bits there. And, uh, uh, and then when I, when I see something that really is got a lot of voltage, like that story uh, that was in the New York times about, about the woman having her father. And there's, there's a picture of, a, of, a, this, of her in her bridal dress mm-hmm. with her hand on uh, Mr. Thomas's chest, it'll just, uh, you know, it would make executioners and pirates weep. It's just so, so moving and so touching. You know, then I rubbed my hands together and said, okay, how can I flesh this out? What can I find in my bits journal to, to give it the best life possible? And not, I mean, I couldn't just retell the story because that's uh, Jenny Stepien's story, but uh, I could, uh, I, you know, I could, I could tell it differently. You know, uh, everybody quotes that, Great thing that T.S. Eliot said about about uh, how how uh, you know uh, good, good poets imitate or bad poets whoever it is poets imitate good poets steal or the best poets steal and, and he says he says go ahead but people don't often quote the second part of Eliot's uh, speech which is he said uh, he said it's okay to steal stuff he said but you have to make it better or at least different mm-hmm. and that that really takes the pressure off you know if somebody else has a good story. You know, it's 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 yours. Uh, you just have to make something. You just have to change it. You have to make it make it different. Try to make it hit. And sometimes, sometimes, you you can make someone else's story hit harder than they can. 
Yeah, there's a way that that, that it works. And, and I th- more than this, which is one of my favorite poems we ever published, um, does the same thing where it tells a really heartrending story. But then the way you move around the, the two other topics, sort of, you almost like forget what the main topic is or something. And that lets you like really be hit with the emotion because you're sort of like, oh, I forgot this. And then bam. Oh, there, and it's the same thing when the when he, you know, the reason why he walks the heart down the aisle. It's just, um, right. it's just so, so moving. And there's a way that it sort of, I don't know, like it slips past your defenses that you don't want to have like a strong reaction almost to a story. You know, there's something like, yeah. I don't know, like that we re- resist that a little bit and, and it just right. sort of sneaks under that and, and hits us really hard. And I just, they're just yeah. some of the most, you know, we do mention that you have a lot of humor in your writing. But but it's that that heart pulling stuff that like comes out from underneath it that that's really the the central aspect in the a lot of the times, um, yeah. So I, so I just love those poems. Uh, let's hear another yeah, one. I, I want to make sure we do do a good number. I'll I'll, I'll do that. I th- I think in magic shows they call that uh, misdirection. Yeah. Where, where mm-hmm. the uh, you know the, the magician says now watch when I reach into the hat and he says uh he says, don't don't look in the wings over there and you look over in the wings and the next thing you know he's holding a bunny rabbit by his ears. <laughs> Uh, let me read it. I'd like to read a poem called High School. It's on page uh, uh, 29 because, um, you know, that's, I mean, uh, Bruce Springsteen has that song, Glory Days. A lot of people think of uh, high school as, you know, the, the peak uh, uh, part of their lives. But I don't know about you, Tim, but I, I kind of, I spent those years kind of looking around thinking, you're kidding. Man, it's got, there's got to be a lot more to it than this. Uh, I knew there was more to life, but I didn't know what that meant. So, uh, in this poem, uh, I had a very a brief uh, flirtation with showbiz uh, that I'm talking about here because uh, just before rock and roll hit, uh, the, the big thing, of course, was folk music, which was a lot easier than rock and roll because all you had to have was a guitar and no three chords, whereas with rock music, you had to have other musicians and uh, keyboards and amps and lighting and uh, all sorts of fancy stuff like that. So uh, so you'll hear a little bit of the uh, my, my sordid past in a poem simply called High School. It would have been a joke if prisons were jokes. We read the usual in English class, Steinbeck, Hemingway, and our science teachers meant well, but for all they taught us, we might have lived in the 18th century when universities focused mainly on theology and science was conducted on weekends by gentlemen with hand-cranked electrostatic generators and butterfly nets. As far as social studies, forget it. The teacher scolded me when he didn't know who the chief justice was, and I did. And when he tried to say quiet, it came out quite. Be quiet, Kirby. Bertrand and Kirby, be quiet now. The girls were beautiful. I was 16. Even the plain girls were beautiful. But they didn't know how to kiss, and I didn't know how to teach them. About that time, the folk music craze hit, and when the Kingston Trio's close-up Dropped in October of that year, Al Edwards and Bob Spain, and I figured the road to glory was paved with sheet music. And since Al already owned a guitar and Bob a banjo, that left the bongos to me, it remaining only for others to starch and iron our lookalike shirts, white half-sleeved affairs with blue stripes that appeared to be made out of the cloth usually reserved for window awnings the kind of shirts worn only by hot dog vendors and folk singers, meaning they were the kind of shirts the Kingston Trio would have worn had they been us. After we played our first show in the cafeteria, four of the bustiest girls in our school ran up and squealed, you sound exactly like the trio. What were they talking about? None of us could sing at all. 
We should have practiced more and squabbled less. The best thing you could say about us is that we didn't forget any of the words and that we more or less began and ended together. Other than that, we were terrible. I'd never been happier in my life. We played another dozen dates or so, and then Al's uncle proposed he take us on the road for the summer to play in the school gyms of towns so isolated that people who couldn't make it to Vicksburg or Montgomery to hear real musicians might actually pay to hear us. But our mothers said no. They gave no reasons. But I'm guessing they saw us falling into the clutches of hard women, desperate small-town divorcees who'd introduce us to cigarettes, underage drinking, and worse. I wanted worse. I wanted to kiss an older woman, somebody who was 28, say, even 30, a blonde in capri pants and heels, her top sliding off one shoulder, her smoky breath in my face, and then her lips on mine like a hot wind, the one desert dwellers call Samoon, which means poison, because others drop dead at its approach, but not me, who was lifted by it, wrapped, my mouth sprung by a kiss like lightning, a flash that spreads and spreads and stays until I feel each thing that will happen in my life from this moment on, the way those wrecked and underwater follow a train of images until they sink and the darkness returns and they're free. So I don't know if high school guys feel that way uh, these days, but uh, sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, you wanted to get out of that place. It was high school from uh, Help Me Information. And there's a question here about that and other poems, which I've wondered too. Um, Dick Westheimer asked, just a simple question, but could you talk about the unique shapes of the stanzas that you do? Because um, they, they, you know, different poems have different structures like this, like this poem does. I'll put it back on screen for everybody. Um, but what, what made you have this sort of stanza shape? Because the lines are sort of the same length roughly, but then you, for people who are listening, yeah. they sort of move with different indent. Um, indentations like there's a one indent then two then one then none then two then one right. in this one and some have right. different structures so how does that come about and why well uh it's it's, it's time to enter uh professor kirby's uh you know term term long seminar on the form formats but i'll try to keep it short uh one thing is I've always loved long sentences and poems and i've never wanted to give the, the reader an even break and i figure if if i uh, uh don't uh uh, you know, just keep going. They might go make a tuna sandwich or turn on the TV. So uh, I, I figured they at least have the courtesy to wait for a period. But I noticed that when I when I wrote when I started doing that, that the, that the uh, I ended up with what copy editors call a word word stack, where you see and 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 all down the, the left margin. So I started kind of thumping it left and right mm. uh, like that, and then I uh, I found that I liked it. Uh, that way because uh, I like doing that. I like that process because it compelled me to uh, uh, to take my time and be more formal in my poetry. You know, we all know that there's sonnets and sestinas and villanelles, but um, what I'll do is I'll write, uh, you know, write a big block of text, uh, lines approximately same length, and then look at them and, 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 you know, there's a little function on your word processor where you can count the lines. And I hit that, and it says, you've got 59 lines. So I say, okay, okay, okay. Um, let me add a line, and then um, that'll make it 60. And then I can make it five, 12 line stanzas, six, 10 line stanzas, 10 sixes, 12 fives, uh, 30, 
two lines, or I can keep it one one big long stanza. Um, or let me add, or let me take away uh, 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 three lines and, and make it fifty-seven lines. And I can do nine sixes or or uh, you know, six nines or whatever. And and then so then I have to start weighing you know the parts of the poem. Say okay, this part is underdeveloped. That's where I'm going to add the line. Or this part is overdeveloped. That's where I'm going to cut it. Uh, and and then uh, you know suddenly I'll see a, there's a line that's like going off the page. Okay, that line's too long. I need to cut it back. Or a line is is too short. It's better tap this out. And I, you know obviously I I I don't do it just for look. I mean I wouldn't lengthen the line just to make it look longer. But I'm going to lengthen. Uh, you know it, it's I, I say here's an opportunity to provide more content. So uh, just the way people write sonnets, you know they don't write 13 or 15 lines and they you know they get their. Uh, a a b a b rhyme scheme go, going and and they do their i am stuff like that it's a way uh, for me to impose a uh, form uh, my poem somebody wrote a grandiose essay once and they said they said kirby's lines work like pendulums and they swing back and forth and keep taking you back to the center i'll buy that as well <laughs> yeah that, that yeah. sounds good uh, it's interesting though that a self-constraint that helps you make decisions i i hadn't i that wouldn't have been my guess um that's yeah. interesting <laughs> Um, the the high school poem made me wonder just about how you came into poetry. I always I'm always curious about that question. Um, do you remember like the first sort of poem you fell in love with, or how old you were, or, or what the first poem you wrote that mattered to you, or anything like that? I, I remember writing writing uh, poems very early. I think I was. I mean, one of my first memories is holding one of those fat pencils. Maybe it wasn't fat. Maybe it's just that my hand was small, and, and writing on the kind of rough paper that we had, uh, like sketching paper. When we were kids because I was. Uh, uh, trying to um, trying to get my mother's attention and and to make her happy. My my parents had me and my brother when they were they were a lot older. Uh, they, they were well into their forties when they had me, and then I had one older brother. So I was, you know, I was the little guy who was kind of always say, "Hey, look look at me over here." So so um, I, I guess like like a lot of pop musicians, you know, my first uh, first uh, audience was my mom, and I went I wanted to make her happy and. And uh, put a smile on her face. I mean, she 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 had to work hard, and she had a, uh, you know, some some things to overcome. And so uh, I think I think that's where I, uh, I you know I wanted to say, okay, this this uh, this is a poem. This is these aren't my sensitive feelings. This is entertainment. This is showbiz. I'm going to make my mom smile. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's really cool to hear. Um, in the book, um, going back to the knowledge. Um, you just cover so many things. You really do. There's there's neuroscience in there, which I love. That the different you know the bifurcated brain and the different layers yeah. and, and the the vatic voice. Uh, one of the provocative things you say early on is that there are there's a good kind of poem and a bad kind of poem. Um, can you can you sort of explain uh, how you how you would define that? Uh, you know, it's uh, you, you can break it down, but it either gets under your skin uh, or or it doesn't. Uh, I, th- I think the uh, the the poet uh, has has to come across uh, as uh, you know in- intelligent but engaging. You know, Saul Bellow, the novelist, once said, uh, "If you have a smart neighbor, you can save money on your uh, psychiatry bills because you just you, know, you just go out there and he puts his elbows in the fence. You just talk to him, and you know, 15 minutes later, he's hey, I feel pretty good about life.' Uh, so." Uh, uh, you know, it's I, I talk a lot about voice in the knowledge and how you you, have, you want to have a voice that people um, I don't want to say they have to listen to because that, that sounds like you're compelling them to do something. But uh, I don't mean, think think of great actors. Think of somebody like Alan Rickman, you know, uh, who's the you know, the terrorist in uh, uh, 
Die Hard, you know, the Bruce Willis movie. He has this low rumbling voice. When you hear him, or when you hear when you hear uh, Sean Sean Connor or Darth Vader or Porky Pig or Mae West or Elmer Fudd, you say, that's a really. I want to listen to that a little bit more. That's that's not like the uh, you know generic monotone voice. So I, I think uh, you know if you have a good voice, uh, if you have an appealing voice. Uh, you know, you probably get away with anything. Uh, you can probably read uh, back when we used to have phone books. We would say you could read the first ten pages of the phone book. Whereas if somebody has a has a, a voice that's uh, that that just grates on your ears, they could be saying the most wonderful stuff in the world, and you, you're just not hearing it. Um, well, we have let's let's try to do uh, two more poems. Maybe we'll read one more poem and then a little more talk, and then another poem. To make sure we get two more in. Uh, what do you want to yes, read? Yes, sir. Oh gosh, uh, let's just see. Uh, let's let's get. Uh, we don't have to. You know, I, I, I'll read bad poetry reading because uh, we're talking about bad poetry here. Maybe this will help me answer that uh, that last uh, question. You're going to find that on page ninety nine of the book. What happened was we, we have a poetry series in town. It's always eight o'clock. Always eight. Uh, yeah, always the same place. Always free. And uh, I often go with an old, uh, a friend of mine named Morris, who's a retired uh, pastor, uh, who's um, you know very interested in cultural uh, events of all kinds. And uh, he and I were sitting there, and there was a famous poet, Tim, somebody whose name you would recognize, maybe Ben and Rattle, was giving a reading. And uh, it, he he didn't set his poems up; he kind of droned them. Uh, just uh, you know, you, you, nobody really knew what he was doing. Uh, and so uh, Morris, my friend, said, uh, David, is there a book I could read to help me with this? The bad poetry reading. Morris, it's not your fault you didn't like it. It's the poem's fault. And the poet's. The poems were bad, and he shouldn't have read them. Here's why. Every time you give a talk or teach a class or pay, play a guitar in public or stage a play, there are always going to be several different kinds of people in your audience. And if it's a poetry reading, there will be young people who have never heard poetry read aloud and are there only because their teacher has made attendance a course requirement, which makes this your chance to pull them like fish out of the gray lake they've been swimming in and release them into a sunlit sea. Then there will be people who have been to hundreds of readings, their eyes in a fine frenzy rolling from stage to audience, audience to stage, but also someone who may hear poetry for the last time tonight, an older person or a young fit one who is about to have an aneurysm explode like a bomb in her brain, or most likely of all, someone like you or me driving home when the reading's over and coming to a two-way stop, only the other driver doesn't. Or there's someone who's troubled, who feels as though life isn't worth living, a man whose woman has left him or a woman whose child has died. It seemed okay when it was born, and then it died, and its mother joined the countless women to whom the same thing has happened, who knew what had happened yet couldn't keep from telling themselves that it hadn't, the way Mary Shelley did when she gave birth to a baby girl. And after the child dies, Mary Shelley writes in her journal, Dream that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and we rubbed it before the fire and it lived. Say there's a woman in your audience tonight who's had that same experience. Are you going to read her a poem about a shadow that chases another shadow through an interior monologue, though no one knows whether the second shadow is the same as the first or another shadow altogether, and it all takes place under ice? No, you're not. 
No more than you'd read a poem that says man is born of woman. There's a few days. There's no such thing as death. The babies are all in heaven. And the mommies will see them again someday. Instead, you're going to read something that is, I don't know, earthy, almost primitive, a poem that comforts precisely because it's not trying to, one that focuses on the moment yet glances at everything that surrounds it, perhaps a funny poem with a dark heart or a sad one that provokes belly-shaking laughter or a poem that tells a wonderful story even though it contains chewy little nuggets that are indifferent, even hostile to story. You're going to write an elemental poem, one that has three dimensions. You can try for more, as some people do, but you'll probably end up with none. And after you've written that poem, you're going to try it out on somebody. And they're going to like it because you have written the poem that has the power to comfort that grieving mother, console the lonely, give the hopeless hope. And you can read that poem tonight. Or you can read a bad poem or more than one bad poem. What will you do? What will you do, poets? Read the good stuff, damn you. It is great advice. That was uh, the bad poetry reading from David Kirby's newest book, Help Me Information. Um, you know, uh, Tim, do I say this? I don't know whether I say it in the knowledge. I was looking at uh, something today and I thought it was pretty smart. And I said, who, who said that? And I said, oh, I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I, what, what I said was that a, a poor me to send you a bill or write you a check. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when I when I read a rattle poem, I say, OK, I just got a check for 11 bucks or, uh, you know, 68 bucks or something. Like that. And there are a lot of poems that that I see elsewhere. And I think, oh, damn it, I got to pay a bill here. This is going <laughs> to this one's going to cost me. <laughs> well, that, that is I think I, I don't know if I got to that part in the book, but that is the best explanation of the good poem and the bad poem, in my opinion. I think I might have heard. Um, so there's just so much in this book. I want to talk about more. Um, more things from from the book. There's the the, the problem too um, lately, which you point out in the book of of didactic poetry based on theory, which we seem to be like be overwhelmed by. And how do you yeah. avoid that? Like, how do you write about important topics without putting your own sort of you know imposition on top of it to, yeah. to make us think what yeah. you think we should think to prove that we're all thinking the right thing or, or however however that goes. Yeah, I say uh, you know uh, trust trust the image. Uh, uh, you know, and, and start with the image let, and let and out of the image will come. Uh, well, wh- what will naturally come out? Sometimes it'll be very topical. Sometimes it'll be uh, um, political. Sometimes it'll be timeless. Uh, what do you know? Sometimes it'll it'll be uh, funny. Um, give you a quick example. I um, was. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was reading uh, Lewis and Clark's journals and just screaming with laughter because those guys couldn't spell anything. I mean, uh, I, th- I think it was uh, Clark. He, he, he said, at last we have seen the ocean, uh, the, the, the ocean we have always sought. My men are overjoyed to see the ocean. He spells ocean three, uh, three different ways uh, in, in one sentence. One time he says O-C-T-I-A-N. I mean, you wouldn't even know it. Ocean, except for, so, so I think I got to write a poem about what lousy spellers Lewis and Clark were. But then, of course, uh, I got into the fact that they had this marvelous journey, you know, seeking a waterway to to the Pacific Ocean, which they didn't find because it didn't exist. But seeing, you know, massive herds of buffalo and, and albino pelicans filling the river and stuff like this. But of course, they opened the land to to the the. the uh, you know the the rape and the genocide that followed. They didn't know they were they were doing that, but you know that's what they did. 
So the uh, uh, this you know get, getting from here to there. I think the last line of the poem is America. We are writing you every day because we always are. I mean, you just pick up the newspapers. And this group says this, and this group says that, and you know we're 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 uh, we're kind of like a editorial conflict. You know, all, all, everybody's trying to put their uh, put their version forward. You know, Barack Obama uh, told a story. Donald Trump told a, another story. We're still working on on uh, Joe Biden. So you know, we are we are. Uh, we are writing America every day, and it's a very important work. But it's, it started with the fact that uh, Meriwether Lewis and, and uh, Mr. Clark uh, just just they, they couldn't spell better than an average uh, second second grader. Yeah. So uh, you know, and one thing I I always say to my students, Tim, is I say, uh, uh, don't try to make people think you're smart. Uh, you know, don't don't uh, make the poem mysterious. Don't make it impenetrable. Uh, and they, they, they're likely to say, yeah, he's smart, but, you know, the smart people like and, and smart people can't understand. Just, you know, just write the good poem. Yeah. And one of the things that I love in the book that I never heard this matter before before either is for the, the brain. You could say it's like a hotel. Like most people say yeah. the brain is like a computer. And that's kind of how we think of it in the computer age. But you mentioned like walking through a hotel with all these characters coming out and rooms. It's like a murder scene that you can't go in. I just thought that was a great metaphor. And and the fascinating thing about that, you know, because it is there we're multiple brains. There are all these layers to our brain and in two sides as well. And 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 yeah. there's that Vatic voice that you talk about too, which which um you know that's the term you use here. Other people call it like the deep voice. Or there's something that's like really compelling right. that sort of speaks. I think it's like the voice of God. Like I think that's like what we wrote is the Bible or something, um, and, yeah. and so so how do you like listen for that voice? Like if for somebody out there who's who's trying to find mm-hmm. that, like like how do you how do you let that yeah. voice come out? Like the fascinating thing about like we just this morning did it. We do our critique of the week every usually it's Fridays, mm-hmm. and there are always these great lines that sort of pop out of a poem, no matter how the poem is going, um, where a lot of times they're very simple and very direct. But they have so much like layer and meaning to it, like it's like the heart of the poem, and it's one little simple line, and I think that's what you mean by the Vatic voice, I assume, and 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 that's like what we're always listening for, I think, as poets. I think that's like what the knowledge is. So how do you how do you listen for that voice and like cultivate that? Uh, you know, you, I don't know that you can do it very uh, very actively in that sense. I think you just have to get a lot of language and and mess it around and mess it around. And, and keep changing it. You know, my uh, my side uh, gig is that I'm a, a music writer, and I just reviewed uh, these uh, Paul McCartney lyrics. He, he published this 1,200-page book of every lyric of every song he'd ever written. And he talks about how he, he wrote them, uh, and, and of course, some he wrote, and some, uh, you know, so many of them were written, you know, quickly with John Lennon, and a bunch of them were just worked out over days or weeks in... Uh, uh, in, in a studio, and that's a pretty good metaphor for uh, uh, being a poet. Except you're the only one in the studio. And one thing he said was, uh, he says was, is that uh, is it common phrases? Uh, he didn't exactly say God's voice, but he said very common phrases in a new context will sound deep and historical and mythic and legendary. He said. Uh, he gave this one example of back before they were the, the actual Beatles there, they were packed in a, a van, uh, in a van with a, with a roadie and a bunch of equipment. And they were driving back to Liverpool and the van went off the, uh, the uh, highway in a snow blizzard and ended up on its side. And they were all OK, but, uh, you know, the, the, there they were on the side of the road. 
and, and somebody says, what do we do now? And, and Paul McCartney says, somebody else said something will happen. Hmm. So, uh, so he didn't say to thine own self, be true or to be or not to be or equal MC squeezes, something will happen. And everybody said, oh, okay. And they all felt better. And sure enough, it did. A, a truck came along and it brought them back to, uh, to Liverpool. But, uh, you know, if I just called you up and said, hey, Tim, something will happen, you'll say, well, you know, why are you waking me up from my nap? But, you know, in a context of a horrific story like that, it, it does kind of sound like, you know, like Moses on the mountain, you know, give, giving you exactly the information you need. But uh, and, and that, of course, was a was a, you know, an, an accident accident. And I'm talking about artistic accidents, you know, just just messing it around till it sounds uh, sounds right in your ear and then uh, show it to somebody else. Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring up the Beatles, because I was thinking that as you describe your, your practice and how, how you go about writing a poem, because I, I, I don't know if it was a documentary or a talk I saw something about, about how the Beatles composed songs, like later in their career yeah. when they got really creative. It was because they just had like different snippets that they braided together, really, you know, that, you know, like Paul would write one, you know, thing and then they'd you know write some lyrics and it wouldn't even fit, but they'd put it together anyway. Yeah. And then this like sort of magic came out. And that's kind of what the Beatles are, at least from this this one talk I heard. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that they didn't. And Paul talks about this, this in the book. He's, and it's kind of a secret to longevity. And it's what I'm trying to do by by changing up my uh, my poem style from time to time. He said, uh, you, you know, you, you get tired of being Paul McCartney. So every once in a while, they say, well, I'm going to write a Ray Charles song. Or, or uh, I'm going to go into the studio and say, boys, let's sound like Buddy Holly. And they'd all do a kind of a rockabilly thing like that. And he says, you know, for th three minutes and 12 seconds, you know, we weren't the Beatles. We were Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And, and, uh, but, if, and of course, they sounded like the Beatles. No, and nobody would know that they were doing that. But it's just a... You know, it's, it's just kind of a pro tip, you know, when, when, when you're uh, when you had enough of yourself, you'll be somebody else for a while. Yeah, it's I, good for your art. You know, this is a question that sort of everybody asks, but but I, I sort of hope that you do a lot. Um, how much how much time a day do you spend writing? Because it just feels like I love imagining the thought of like every day David Kirby's there, like having this much fun and putting this much stuff yeah. together. And it seems like it would take a lot of time to do all the sort of background mixing and and how long, long and detailed the poems are. Do you, do you write like for hours a day? I, I spend a couple hours a day in the studio, but not even every, every day. You know, uh, one, one of our heroes, Barbara and I always talk about him a lot, is John Kenneth Galbraith, the uh, economist of all people, who said, look, if you can write a page a day, uh, and, and you take uh, you know time off to go on vacation, spend your family. And I said, uh, at the end of the year, you're going to have 300 pages. And you might say, oh, well, I wrote a page today. I'm a big flop. At the end of the year, you have 300 pages, and that's a book. So um, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time curating my my bits journal, moving moving things around. Of course, I'm, I'm teaching, and that's not all that different always from writing. I mean, it's a you know profoundly creative process in itself. And then you know, working on the on the pieces about music, I can't can't play it. I'm not a musician, but I love you know the typewriter is, is my instrument. But uh, it, it it's more just like you know, brick on brick with lots of lots of mortar. I mean, you know, I drive down the Ventura Boulevard, I see. I think you'll see some tall buildings, uh, but they like they're like Rome, Tim. They weren't built in the day. Just just steady application, I think, uh, and uh, you know, loving what you do. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's great to hear. Um, let, let's hear uh, one last poem to close out this uh, this segment. Let's do, and uh, I'm going to read a poem. This is a, so I don't go on forever. I'm going to read a shorter one. Uh, it's called Locomotion, you know, which is uh, 
I hope everybody, whether or not um, they buy my two fabulous books and subscribe to Rattle, I hope they go on uh, YouTube when we're done here and uh, bring up uh, Little Eva singing uh, her uh, timeless uh, dance tune, uh, The Locomotion. Uh, and that th this, this song is about that uh, poem, but it's also, uh, you know, uh, part of my job is to help young people uh, get through the hard part of, of their lives. And uh, I was, uh, the uh, student did come, there was a student came to my office. This is just like, almost like a diary entry. And, and she was just beside herself because, you know, a lot of these kids are privileged and a lot of them have jobs that are 20, 30, 40 hours a week and how they do that take on the full-time life of a student, I don't know, but uh, but she was doing it, and she was talking about her bad job, so I was telling her a story about my bad job, and when I finished the uh, talk with her, she went away, I said, you know, that's a poem, so I wrote it down this way, the locomotion. Student's so tired, she's weepy. I just got off a double shift, she says, and I tell her not to worry that we've all had terrible jobs, but things turn out okay. And then I tell her about my worst job ever, which was building roads in Claiborne Parish that summer. The sun itself hot enough, the tar puddling around our boots like lava leaked from Dante's hell. Jules LeBlanc and I bunked together and drove back to Baton Rouge on the weekends to do laundry and eat our mother's cooking. But on our last day before we went off to college, we stopped at a roadhouse and emptied can after can of bush beer the white mountains of the logo holding out their snowy promise. Somehow we made our way down Essen Lane, and when we stopped at the first light and little, Le little Eva's locomotion came on, Jules cranked the volume knob, whipped his hard hat into the woods, stepped to the car behind us, dragged out the driver and his wife, and said, Okay, dance. Pope Leo X said, since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. I felt the same way about rock and roll. It gave me sunbodiness, to use Dr. King's word. As the song spooled out into the night, we shook and shimmied, the two old timers and the two young idiots. And then I looked over my shoulder and said, Jules, your truck's rolling. And we took off down Essen Lane, but just before Jules jumped through his door and I threw mine, I turned to check on the old folks. Were they okay? asks my student. The light hadn't changed, I say. His arm was around her waist. His other hand was in hers. They were still dancing. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem and it's just a wonderful book, as all your books are. That's Help, Help Me Information. That was a locomotion from that book. Um, David, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, you know, the, the viewers at home get to ha spend an hour with you, but I get to spend like all day because I get to read these books, uh, which I just love. And it makes me, you know, want to write more than I do and, and take more time to do that and, and to read more for pleasure. Yeah. And um, so I just, I appreciate it so much. Tim, you're so, you're so well-informed and you're such an enthusiast for poetry. It's just a joy to talk to you. And I want to thank you for uh, doing everything you can to keep that big poetry disco ball spinning. You know? Well, it's definitely all my pleasure. Uh, thanks, David. Have a great yeah. night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If that was David Kirby with, um, uh, once again, his uh, most recent book is Help Me Information, which you can find from LSU Press. There it is, right there, and then uh, and then the book, which I really recommend. This is especially a, a book for, um, you know, somebody who wants to learn all those things that that you would learn 
maybe in a um, MFA type program uh, from a great teacher. You sort of get get to have an MFA with David Kirby uh, from this book, the knowledge where poems come from and how to write them. Um, and that is from Flip Learning. And of course, if there are any teachers in the audience, it is the way, not many people know this, but it is the way that poets make the most money and get the most sort of movement on their stuff is when books are assigned in class, whether it's an individual um, poetry book like Help Me Information or a, a textbook like The Knowledge. Um, that's where most sales come from. So if you're a, if you're a publisher, that's what you look for, for doing. So um, hope you pick those up and you can find more at davidkirby.com. Um, hopefully, I think the uh, the link wasn't working today when I checked. Um, if you don't find it there, you can just Google David Kirby, and there's a whole bunch of stuff all over the place because he's got 35 books, um, plus this textbook and a whole lot of other things. He's a wonderful poet, and so glad we could have him today. Now we're going to take a quick break and do the open lines. Let me show you how the open lines work before we do. Um, so first thing, email the poem if you haven't yet to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. So I have it and can share it on screen like I was doing with David's poems as he read them. And then you can choose one or the other, either call in over Skype, um, or I mean, send me a chat message over Skype, I should say, at Rattle Poetry, all one word, Rattle Poetry. Just send me a chat message, say hi, you'd like to share a poem. And then um, that'll get me on the list and I'll call you when it's your turn. The other option is to just do it by traditional phone. The number is 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times and then hang up. And once again, I will call you back within about an hour when it's your turn. And now um, let me take a little break and stretch a little bit and I will be right back. Thanks for your patience. Um, and I did mention that the uh, prompt for this week, if you wrote one, was to write a poem about a snake or a serpent. So for the open lines, it can be the prompt poems that we give. We just give a simple prompt every week. Um, it can also be poets respond poems about current events. It can just be a poem you published recently and want to share, and we can show the, the link and where it's actually published online, if that's the case. Whatever you'd like to do, uh, feel free to share whatever you'd like. And we have uh, some first-time callers. We have Andrew Dillon, I see. Um, I see a nine. Uh, Carolyn Codd there. Um, Tanvi Joseph. Um, let's see. And we've got Nivedita Karthik. We have D Richard Westheimer, Carla Schwartz, uh, Patrice Wilson. So we got a, a nice crowd of uh, callers coming up. And for this prompt, I, uh, I don't know, it was one of those quick poems. And I, and I like writing, like trying to write short poems. And because I, I love reading short poems, I don't think I'm very good at it. So I, and I thought about this as like this would make a good ending to a poem, but then I had no idea what the beginning would be, and um, so I don't know. I just thought, hey, maybe it doesn't need a beginning, and <laughs> maybe it can just be the end, and we'll we'll sort of imply something, and that'll be it. So this is my uh, snake poem, and I I did steal the title from uh, David Kirby's book too. That's where the idea came from. This is the knowledge. And then it appears, like a snake almost stepped on, hidden in the shadows of the pine needles, wind blown over the narrow trail, just a yearling by the size of the rattle, and still the venom to kill a man alone at the canyon's edge, his whole future a foot above that twittering tail. So that was the knowledge, my poem. And uh, Megan has a last-minute poem, too, that she just, right before we came on air, gave to me. And this is Megan's poem, Snake Handling Preacher. There's an epigram. Uh, they shall take up serpents. The rattler 
curves like a, the dirt road that leads to this church, where so many sinners pack the pews, the floorboards groan like they're repenting, and the preacher is holding up the snake with one steady hand, lifting to it to the rafters, while the place erupts shouts of hallelujah rattling the fogged windows, the earthy smell of sweat, the beaded tail making its own music, a psalm of warning that nobody can hear over the cries of praise from the old woman, and the stiff-chinned man, men, and the dancing children. And when the snake bites, it almost doesn't matter, because here comes the preacher's son, ready to take it back, ready to take back what the Lord takes away. A very interesting poem by Megan, a snake-handling preacher. And we have a poem, too, from Colin. So it's a tr- another green trifecta. This was Colin, our seven-year-old son. This is what he wanted to share today. This is Snake Named Susan. Uh, here we go. This is Snake Named Susan. If you can see that. Snake Named Susan. Once there was a snake named Susan. Susan lived in a Christmas tree before it was put up. Susan lived in a Christmas tree for almost her whole life. So it's hard to fit it on the screen. Uh, but one day she went outside. It was very, very cold, and the conditions were so bad that she barely died, but thankfully she did not. That is Colin's snake poem, A Snake Named Susan. And we get the snake um, and the uh, S there. Very clever. Thanks for sharing that, Colin. And uh, now let's see what we have. We have a T.R. Paulson and uh, Mike Bales, too, coming up. I should say that if anybody, um, you know, when you call in, make sure you um, don't watch live. Make sure you mute the uh, the stream or X out completely so that you're only talking to me through the phone or through Skype because there's a delay. And otherwise, it'll be very confusing So uh, for you because there'll be two voices in your ear and you won't know who you're actually talking to. And you also can't read the poem on the screen. You have to have the poem in front of you reading it yourself because of that same delay. You're not in the same spot reading as the uh, stream actually is. So we are going to go first to... um, Let's go first to... Let's go to Richard Westheimer first because we did him last last week. Hey, Richard. How are you doing tonight? Good. Believe it or not, after a year of doing this, I was surprised. <laughs> yeah, you can't not be surprised. And you're back at the old abode, I see. Uh, yes, I am back with my fam- familiar surroundings, and, and uh, so far I have, have had no ill effects and only joy from my trip. That's wonderful. And so how long have you been back? And was it a gr- good trip? Yes, it was It was lovely first time. Obviously, we've been together in quite a while, so... Uh, um, and. Yeah, it was it was good. Lots of grandkids. Yeah, well, that's that's great to hear. Um, so, what yeah. what poem did you want to share today? Uh, because our guns are our future. And before I did, I just wanted to say that interview. Like, sometimes I can be distracted washing dishes or something like that during during the interview, but I was just transfixed. It was just wonderful. Yeah, David's kind of a legend. I mean, his poems are just so good, and um, he's such a great teacher, too, at the same time. So he's got tons of students that are really successful, and um, it just, it just he's one of those people that, um, I don't know, he's so memorable and has so many thoughts and ideas and great poems. He's a great person to talk to. And, and, and the Poets Respond poem this morning had I've been sharing it with everybody I know. It's just, it was just spectacular in both readings. And I agree with you that the 
the reading in the Afrikaans was was stunning. Yeah, um, it, it really was. Whole... I love getting to have and two guests at the same time, which I know how to do now. We had to test it a little bit at a time to make sure it would work. Uh, but now we can, if there's ever another reason to do that, we can. Um, okay, so this was because our guns are our future. And so set this up. What, yeah. what is the context for this poem? Uh, well, it was it was written, you know, there, there was a small gun incident in ATL Airport, Atlanta Airport with a, a gun, a gun that accidentally discharged mm. when the owner of it tried to grab it out of the bag, the carry on oh, bag. Man. And it's, you know, it inconvenienced a lot of people. Nobody was hurt. And it's just one of many gun stories this week. But it was the one that just made me shake my head and go, yeah, who brings a loaded everywhere. gun to the airport? Like, what? <laughs> aye, yeah. aye, aye. Well, he's not alone. It happens a lot. But uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, also that it, it's just it's just the whole, um, you know, it's the march of guns, as it were. So this this was and and it's it's become a cliche. So thus this poem, which is just a bunch of cliches, <laughs> as it were. So that, that's the story here. Because guns are our future, and the epigraph from Eleanor Roosevelt, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Because I live in the United States of guns. Because the gun is mightier than the sword. Because a gun in the hand is worth two in the carry-on bag. Because all that glitters is guns, because the guns got my tongue, because only guns will tell, because I am as old as guns, because all is fair in love and guns, because any gun in a storm will do, because guns make the world go round, because they don't make guns the way they used to, because guns are money, because a fool and his gun are easily parted because you only hurt the ones you gun because guns are blind because guns love company because guns are the best medicine because guns are more than skin deep because one bad gun spoils the whole bunch because there's no such thing as a free gun because that's the way the gun bounces because I fear the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their guns. Yeah, it's a great poem, Richard. Uh, you know, all those cliches, you know, work in such a great new way. I think it's a really, it's one that really works. I hope you get to publish it somewhere. I'll keep looking. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Richard. Always a pleasure. Yeah, bye. bye. Now, Richard Westheimer with Because Our Guns Are Our Future. And let's call up uh, T.R. Paulson, who hasn't been on in a while. See what T.R. has for us today. Then we'll go to some first-time callers. Hi, Jim. T.R., hello. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, you're here coming in on video. There Hi. you go. And so what did you want to share? I sent you an email. Did you get it? I did, yes. Yeah. So I have um, branding and star um, starvation. Um, yeah, the one of them, I don't know if I have time for two or not. I don't you know, know I think we do. I think it. the call list isn't that huge. So, yeah, why don't you just read both? Okay. So um, the branding day one is my snake poem. 
uh, but it's not freshly written. I'm trying to put together my book and go going through all my poems I've ever written. And so this is one that was originally published by a journal called Dead Flowers, a poetry rag um, by Bohemian, Bohemian Pupil Press, which I think they're now defunct. I mean, I, if you Google the right things, you can find their stuff online, but mm -hmm. it's pretty much hard. Like you have to know what to Google. Um, oh, very cool. I'm glad you're putting together a manuscript finally. Is that the first time you've you've done that? Um, well, you've you've emphatically rejected a couple of my <laughs> chat books. Um, well, I don't know. Rejected isn't the right word. They weren't selected. Of, of of the you know they weren't the three of the two thousand <laughs> to pick. No, I I know. There's different ways of dealing with the whole rejection thing, and my my way is through humor. So <laughs> okay. not everybody gets my sense of humor, though. <laughs> Hopefully, you're starting to though. Yeah. Okay, so on so, brand and branding day is the one. So yeah, that's my that's my snake poem. Okay. On branding day. The cowboy, old and thinner than he's ever been, rides his favorite mare on lunch break to hide among trees where he drinks, ensure a cupful or less, before returning to lift his hand, the rope circling in the air before the calf falls, caught. His nurse has told him this, the appetite loss, not the roping, is part of death. Soon, in a year or less, he'll ride out at midnight to find the silver wolf who once took five calves. He'll shoot her in the heart and watch her body shut down. He who always went to church. In those green pastures where foals lie down with snakes, he'll dare the sheriff to cuff him and take him to jail. Very touching poem. Um, that was on branding day. Is the manuscript horse related? Because I love how, I, I've told you this before, I think, but there aren't many people who write poems about horses. And so it's always fun and interesting to read because it's not a topic that you see a lot. Um. Yeah, the, the full-length manuscript sort of meanders around between, um, I have, I'm actually, a friend of mine is helping me put it together. Mm -hmm. um, a friend from, I'm, I'm a Kenrod Anisio student, I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't, um, yeah. But a fellow student, Tracy Knapp, who you published in the oh. Kenrod mm -hmm. Anisio initiative, is helping me put it together. And so she actually, I because I write about so many random things, she actually helped me find a bunch of themes I was thinking about in the interview um, with... Kirby, mm -hmm. that um, the way he talks about braiding, and that's sort of what I'm trying to do in my manuscript is make the the animal poems sort of meshed in with the human poems, and then have them come back to animals. And and get my advice to anybody who's trying to put together a manuscript: get help, don't do it alone. <laughs> yeah, it's probably good advice. Uh, so, what is the second poem you wanted to share? Okay, so um, Robert Bly passed earlier this week. Um, I don't know if you got any um, tribute poems to we him. We did, yeah. It was, there were a few I was thinking of, and then this poem was this poem. Uh, I just liked so much it kind of overwhelmed the others. I only had the one slot this week, um, but yeah, we did get a bunch of tributes. Maybe, maybe we'll I don't know find another time. Maybe Thursday we might have room if people are still sending them. But but yeah, it, it, definitely a lot of poets, um, you know, appreciate Robert Bly. Yeah, um, yeah, he was influ influential. For me too um and um this poem is actually this poem is called at starvation falls falls and it's an imitation of his poem snowbanks north of the house mm -hmm. which i don't know if you've heard it's easily yeah. findable online yeah that's um, one of his yeah that's one of his good ones one of his sure. famous ones mm -hmm. um and it's this poem is actually one i wrote a couple years ago and it's forthcoming 
and an anthology called, mm-hmm. let me think of the name of it, Poets Speaking to Poets, Echoes and, Echoes and Tributes. And the whole anthology is poems that are in response to other poems, poem, poems in response to other poets. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's super a good one. excited about it because I think there's this huge tradition in responding, you know, poems talking to each other and poets responding to each other. And so I, I'm super excited about being in this anthology and I hope it, I hope like you were ta- just talking about teachers teaching out of things. I hope some teacher discovers it and decides to teach out of it. And I'm excited about the poets that I'm, that I'm published side by side with. I and mean, it's, Super excited about it. So this is a preview of um, one of my two poems that's in the anthology. Yeah, it sounds really great. Okay, so I have it up. Go Uh, ahead whenever you're ready. At Starvation Falls. Those gusty gorge winds start suddenly at the cloud line. Trails only go so far. The mountain biker leaves his cheating lover and drinks no more wine. The daughter walks to Bridal Vale Falls and makes herself at home. The widower unlocks his boat and catches three more fish. And the bruised wife hikes Mount Defiance, but loves her husband once more. The energy builds in the wind, and two windsurfers jump off swells in the barge lane. It will not go away. We all know them. One's always flying, whose feet touch nothing, as though safe. And the mother returns to Hole in the Wall Falls, where she made love with her son's father. She searches for her beloved, but never sleeps alone. As the water tumbles from the peaks, the salmon go on swimming upstream. The boy gets out of high school, reads many more books, and learns that long ago, drifts of snow stopped two trains at Starvation Falls. The men took out their shovels and skis, but nobody starved at all. The toe of the brown boot pivots at the edge. The man in the bright t-shirt topples from the cliff. No one knows why he chose that trail, or how he fell, or if he hiked along. Very excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing both of those, uh, T.R. It's always a pleasure, and good luck with your manuscript. Yeah, two poems in free verse today. I bet you've never, never. I, I would not that have would expected it. Me. I was wondering, like, is there some obscure form that I'm not thinking? Of? <laughs> and speaking of free, free verse, I am. I'd like to congratulate Richard Westheimer if he's still listening. I loved his poem in the current issue of Rattle, um, which I'm calling a free verse on it. I mean, it's four, 14 lines and. I was counting syllables, trying to see if it's in, I am in pentameter, but it's not, it's so, but a yeah. nice sonnet. Yeah, I, beautiful poem. I'm sure I he still it. is. Yeah, we loved it. So um, everybody can vote too, if, uh, if you want to vote for uh, Richard's poem or every subscriber yeah, I'm, anyway, I'm can trying vote. trying to decide who to vote for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, anyway, thanks. Yeah. Always nice talking to you, Tim. Yep, yep. Great. Have a good night. You too. Bye. That was T.R. Paulson with um, uh, two poems at Starvation Falls and um, on Branding Day. And now let's go to that first-time caller we mentioned. Um, where was it? Andrew Dillon? I think has never been on before, unless this is a new account. AndrewDillonPoetry.com is his website. Let's see what Andrew has for us. Hello? Hey, Andrew. Yeah, so glad you could join us. Have you been on before? Your name kind of seems familiar, but I couldn't. It might be a different account or something. Yeah, it was two weeks ago, but I called in because my Skype account is so old. I wasn't, I decided last minute to call in and I was like, oh, I know I haven't opened this in like 10 years. I know it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very cool. Well, I don't know if you want to appear on screen, but if you do hit the camera button. Oh, sorry. I tried to give it permission earlier. 
Yeah, it yeah. might be it might be um, hijacked by a different program, which is why we don't use that other program. But anyway, um, if you if you only have audio, that's fine too. Uh, so okay, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's all right. So, what poem did he want to share? It only takes two to make a murder of crows. Is what I have here. Is that the right one? Yes, that's the right one. Oh, there you go. Hello. There we go. <laughs> yeah, good to see you. Um, so, so is there anything you want to say to set this up? Well, so I saw the prompt was for a, a snake poem. Um, I don't have any snake poems, but this one does. The epigraph mentions a snake. Um, this poem is just about. Uh, it eventually comes around to my grandfather, mm-hmm. I guess is where I'll say. <laughs> well, great. Let's hear it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. So the epigraph is uh, Guy Clark on a Daryl Scott song, Down to the River. Well, the crows, they go in there and catch baby rattlesnakes. They'd have them over for lunch. Then line the nests with skin and bones. Skin and bones. Skin and bones. Isn't it far out? I've been trying to write a song about it ever since. It only takes two to make a murder. Two to betray the purpose of the rest. It only takes one dream to build out of hope a nest in your mind. One note of Edelweiss to disrobe the night of pretense. One scent to damn the river of this moment and uncover the nations of your past. In the thick air of a dark morning, you sing a promise. The earth tilts, buries your song in snow. All over, life moderates. The body clicks along its tired roots. How many regrets would you say the soul can sustain before it sheds its wings? Sometimes I'm overwhelmed to recall that I am living this unprecedented life. No one can overrule my path. Maybe no one can save me when I dive over the guardrail. Each pause in the conversation is a new moment. Each moment is a room whose door I can close behind me. I hold three deep breaths for seven seconds and exhale for eight. Somewhere in Seoul, a woman steps out of the shower and the day is again fresh with possibility. She might jump soaking into her bed and nap till Friday. Drink a liter of beer at the corner store. Hop a ferry across the East Sea. I might sell my house, red-eyed to Vienna. Busk my poems and my father's songs at the Metro. I've been trying to write a poem about Grandpa at Normandy ever since I watched Alzheimer's strip away hunger, children, the perfect bocce toss, leaving only skin and bones. Skin and bones, skin and bones. This isn't that poem, but here he is on the page. Here you are considering the death he cleaned limb by organ by pint from the beach and his own death, which he suffered daily for years. You might be wondering where this poem is going, but it's starting to lose its feathers. But if I leave this poem to the crows, I continue to close all my doors. If I leave this poem, grandpa becomes another memory. The story of a life muted by questions I never bothered to ask. It only takes two to make a murder. It only takes one generation to let the past wither. It only takes silence to declare yourself complicit. It only takes one regret to gather the bracken of a life like every crow has come to roost at your front door.
Yeah, great poem. The turn to your grandfather, really moving. And then I love that each moment is a room whose door I can close behind me. Uh, good stuff. Thanks so much for sharing that, Andrew. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, have a good night. You too. That was uh, Andrew Dillon with uh, It Only Takes Two to Make a Murder of Crows. And let's go to uh, Mohammed Al-Badiwi. Actually, now let's go back to, to um, Carla Schwartz because she called it earlier. Then we'll go to Mohammed. Hello, this is Carla. Hey, Carla, how are you doing tonight? I'm okay, a little better than last week. But, you know, it's come, come, everything's coming along. Yeah, yeah, but, for sure. uh, Yeah, um, and I had a nice holiday, and I hope you did too. Yeah, yeah, we had a good one. Uh, you know, it's a, we have a small family, but it's a really nice family. We, we really enjoy our time um, oh, doing good, all the family good. stuff. Uh, Great. And yeah, and, and it's been an amazing night of poems so far. So um, the poem I have, um, I, I use the word make in it, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's called <laughs> dedication. Yeah, go you ahead. have it up, right? Yep, I have it. Go ahead. When I tackle a pile of dusty papers, sort the recycling from the mementos. It's not the scraps of writing I hope to cull into drafts, call my own again, that remind me of you. It's when I throw things away, I think of the way you clean while you plan for the small shelf before born. We don't know we'll love. First you measure then drill and cleat and screw. Leave room for wires to snake through from behind to power up the phones and tablets, even flashlights. And when you're done, how you bowl up each rug, take it out to shake, then sweep away the bits of sawdust that remain. Oh, very touching and very, uh, very vivid, too. Great poem. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Thank you so much, and have a great night. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. It's Carla Schwartz with dedication, and um, if you know, uh, if you watched last week's episode, you probably know what that is about—the the backstory of that. But thanks for sharing that, Carla. And uh, let's go to uh, Mohammed Al Badiwi. Hey, Mohammed, G- glad you could join us. It's hey, great to see Tim. You. Yeah, it's great to see you again. So, so how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. Just had dinner. Ah, How's your day? It's been a great day. It's a, I had a really busy, you know, last several weeks, and it's finally like I could just not really do much, <laughs> which was nice. That's nice. I love the the poster behind you. Yeah, that's the cover of uh, issue seventy, which I should uh, you know update maybe. I really like seventy four's cover. Maybe I'll maybe I'll buy another one. Um, but it's nice to have something back there. I, th- I yeah. thought about getting like one, be fancy and getting a TV. <laughs> having like some kind of motion graphics, but uh, that's not what we're all about, really. Um, so, so what did you want to share with us today? I see a picture. Yes, I'm sharing a poem called a prose poem called "The Badlands." Mm-hmm. Um, Is there anything yep. you want to say to introduce it, or do you just want to jump in? Sure, a little bit of an introduction. It's just it's from a visit to the Badlands. It was my first visit. Uh, there's a picture there that I took. This was back in August uh, of this year. Yeah, and the Badlands are just an amazing place. Because I, I, since I was a kid, 
I've been fascinated by the younger Dryas and the Missoula floods and, and whatever, you know, whether it was, um, over a long period of time or a short period of time that those badlands were made is just an amazing question that we still sort of have a lot of debate about. Um, and so that, that it's just a, such a strange landscape. Um, that's true. That's true. They're, they're fascinating. Yeah. So here, so go ahead whenever you are ready. All right. Um, this is called the badlands. I went to the Badlands and thought about the stories of the dinosaurs that once walked these mountains and of the people that came after them, the natives and later the colonists. And today I walked past a few people and captured moments of conversation. One that stuck with me is a young girl who was telling her friend how she wanted to become a science researcher. How lovely, I thought. She was walking across lands dying to be studied and I found my heart rooting for her. I remembered my own little girl and how she now lies beneath lands dissimilar. And a little boy who raised across a tiny path and proclaimed himself the winner. I won, he burst. I didn't know it was a race, said his mother, and moments later came a gleeful shout. Second place, from either his father or a random man. That's first loser, right? I said to my companion. And then a young couple holding hands in the funniest way and laughing as I noticed them. A momentary love on lands eternal. There will pass millions more. They're called the Badlands, because they are bad lands, we decided, as kings and queens of Earth. There's nothing there, and they eroded a whopping one inch per year. Had the lands a mind as brilliant as ours, perhaps they'd think of us as bad people, of no use to the land, eroding at a rate of 58 million bodies a year. You know what they say, erosion is in the eye of the beholder. The Badlands bore witness to this colorful day I've had, and a tiring one, but with lovely company, a tiring day is a day well lived. We walked down into the canyon and climbed back up the bad way, through the trees and the rose bushes in the path that deer and rabbits take, not the path of humans. It was a mistake, really, but we were halfway up and not about to admit that perhaps we should go back down, do things the normal way. How weak that would be. Here lies an unnamed man, wrote some poems and was defeated by a canyon. No, and how could I ever let my love down, she who's braving these woods ahead of me? With every step I hear a crack and a crunch, and I think once again of the dinosaurs that once stepped foot right where I stood, now submerged, compressed, fossilized. These lands have buried many creatures, and they will bury many more. Who else will tell their story, if not the badlands themselves? Time's graveyard laid bare inch by inch and year after year. This is not erosion, this is the book of earth turning over page after page, slowly so we can catch up, so the little girl, the science researcher, can speak to us of who walked there and when and why. One final crunch and wind at last in my face. We made it, I said to her eyes and her purple hair. We made it, said she. And um, that photograph is when we got out and (laughs) climbed back up. Sorry. So, um, yeah, I'm going to re re say that just, um, um, cause I had it on mute because oh, okay. I coughed earlier, but, um, but yeah, so you, a- you'd asked about who the politician was who, um, mm-hmm. who, who wrote to us after we wrote a poem about him and it was Anthony Scaramucci, who is this, um, I don't know, right leaning, I don't know anything about him really, but, um, his assistant wrote to us and said, um, Anthony loved the poem. And then I looked and Anthony Scaramucci had followed us on Twitter, even though it was a poem that was insulting him. So that was, that was pretty funny. Um, and then I was also thinking of another time where we were, had a poem where um, it was about someone who died sort of tragically. And, it, you know, and out of nowhere, just a very small town newspaper type story. 
And then the mother mm-hmm. wrote to us and said how moving, you know, she found oh, the poem wow. and thanked, thanked the person for writing it. So, um, you know, so people find the poems is, was my point there. And, um, and yeah. also just great poems um, that you always share. It's such a pleasure to uh, hear these poems by you. And that was a really touching, moving piece, too, which is what I was saying uh, also off mic while I was muted. But uh, thanks for sharing that, Mohammed. Thank you so much, Tim, for your very, very kind words. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Take yeah, so that was uh, Mohammed Abadiwi. And sorry about the mute thing. I um, had a little itch in my throat and then forgot to re-undo it. Um, and so let me, let me um, I wonder if I could find that, that poem I was talking about. Yeah, here it is. This was, a, oh, it was Bailey Frazier. And so uh, I'll play this just, it's a minute and a half long. The, the setup is... Um, so this is Bailey Fraser. This poem came in response to Anthony S- Scaramucci. I was spelling it totally wrong. Anthony Scaramucci's recent phone call with a reporter. Afterwards, in a televised interview, he called himself a straight shooter. And now, as of Monday, he's already been fired. That was interesting. So, yeah, so what is this article? He, sacked, he was Trump's media chief. That's who he was. And I think he still follows us on Twitter. There he is, Anthony Scaramucci. And this was Bailey Fraser's poem. Um, straight shooter, which I will play right now. Or Bailey's going to read it herself. Straight shooter. You are only as terrible as what falls, like the season's first kill, gleefully from the wound of your mouth. My cousin once told me not to fear God, and that night I prayed to the graffiti ceiling, please, no angels, brushed by wind from a window. Every truth sheared by the tongue that tells it, by mirrors glinting like blood in the sun. I would say to the clouds, rain takes my clothes off. To my cab driver, another storm coming. I've dyed my hair enough to stain my fingers, blue as an airless sentence I have kissed too much. I have been in love quietly with my country. Stroke the taxidermy of her truth displayed like a sky on my television. Someone once liked her image enough, limp as it was, to hold her up in front of me, ask for a photograph. I've cried, for I've loved my country like a trophy, like something I'd mount on my wall. Yeah, so that was Bailey Fraser reading um, um, Straight Shooter, a poem for Scaramucci, which remains one of um, the two strangest interactions I've had. And it's always with, um, well, a certain sort of political perspective. There's another poem that became like a, a, a right-wing meme by Jack Prasobiak that was really strange, too. Um, so let's see. I, I wanted to share this other poem, too, because I, I want to do more of um, just sharing poems from Rattle and getting them onto the podcast. And I thought I'd do the other poem that I was thinking of, if I could f- remember which one that is. I have to remember who wrote it. Um yeah, this is After the Memorial by Megan Collins. Again, we have audio, so I'll play this one too. This is Megan Collins' poem and her notes. Um, I wrote this poem in response to a local tragedy in which a teenager, Austin um, Totkus of Ellington, Connecticut, was killed in an ATV accident. On Tuesday of this week, there's a memorial in which people gathered to let go of balloons filled with messages they had written for the boy. The idea of this tribute moved me, and I wondered what would happen to those messages where where they would end up once the balloons popped. 
In writing this poem, I imagined a kind of healing end to that story, both for those who knew Totkus and those who didn't, but are similarly affected by their own personal heartaches. And here is this poem, um, a really, really touching, moving poem by Megan Collins. Um, and this was written back in June 29th, 2014. So one of the very early poems. It was one of the poems that let me realize that that Poets Respond is a kind of special thing, actually. It was like one of the, maybe the sixth poem that we published in this series. So here he goes. This is Megan Collins reading After the Memorial. After the Memorial. It's an elegant thought, sending messages to heaven. So they gathered on the football field, slipped into balloons the words they might have otherwise written in his yearbook. They used their functioning, unpinned lungs to inflate those bubbles of color, then held each tied end tightly before finally letting go. Candles in their hands, they watched the balloons drift farther away, the distance becoming as massive as the impossibility of an accident had been. People lingered as long as the light allowed, then, in huddles of arms and bowed heads, turned away, the flames and sunset burnt out. But balloons, fragile as bodies, burst when they get too high, and the next morning a woman working in her garden, miles away from the field, found, I never told you this, but I love you. It was nestled in the petals of hydrangea, and she stared at the note like the handwriting was something she remembered. There was also a girl, pigtailed and proud of her chalk drawings, who glimpsed a white scrap in the grass. You're the kind of person I always wanted to be, but I was afraid. She was too young to understand the words, so her mother, home now after a double, read them aloud, her breath catching. And the boy's father, who sat on his front porch, barely seeing the lawn laid out in front of him, only felt the note as the wind dropped it on his feet. You were so much stronger than I ever was. You were beautiful and brave and alive. Impossible as the fact that he'd had to plant his son like a seed in the earth, here were his own words, sent back from the sky. That was After the Memorial um, by Megan Collins from Poets Respond, June 29th, 2014. Um, another, it's just a beautiful poem. Uh, and you might notice that we went back to the old website. Um, rattle.com is now the old rattle.com. And it's just, it's kind of a relief to have it back. I hired somebody or a, a company to update the website and it did not go well, let's say. So I finally just gave up and made a, <laughs> made the website, redid it like it used to be. And uh, we will try to hire a new company to um, do the updates that I want. Um, but uh, so there you go. But I'm glad that's one of the things I've been exhausted about is trying to fix this website over the last two months. And, uh, it's just nice to not have to worry about it anymore. So let's go back to the open lines. Um, and let's go to let's go to Zachary Honeycutt. Hello. Hey Zachary, how you doing tonight? Good. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing great, and I see that you have a free verse poem, uh, which is shocking in and of itself. Uh, do you want to explain <laughs> a little bit uh, what it's about? Yeah, uh, do you have do you have this picture, Tim? Can you show this picture that I sent you? I do. Yeah, it's right here. This is a, a spiral staircase, and that is an amazing picture. Where where is that from? 
I actually don't remember. It, I used it in one of my college poetry classes years ago to write a poem about. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know where I got this. I think I might have just got it on the computer somewhere. But Yeah, for, for yeah. everybody who's just listening, this is an, a really cool black and white photo of um, a bunch of, I think they're all boys. Maybe there's, yeah, girls too. So kids, maybe, I don't know, 11 years old with their heads hung over a railing of this really cool spiral staircase. It looks kind of like a number six, um, but swirled yeah, like a yeah. like a snail shell or something. It's a cool photo. Yeah. It's almost like an art deco six or something, some artistic looking six. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and but, the, um, so the poem is about this. Yeah, I this actually has a, a really good snake metaphor, so that's why I'm going to read it tonight. But yeah, I just thought I would completely flip the switch and I would uh, read a free verse poem. So, yeah. Okay. Very good. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready, I'll scroll down to it. Okay. A spiral staircase full of children. We view the whole world from the heights of heaven. We, the children, who cannot see nor even glimpse the head of the creature that marks our days. Like the plot line of a movie, moving through continuous shots of events that happen but don't seem real. We gaze collectively from the spiraling steps of heaven, lest we forget the impression they made on us before we became as unyielding as bone. How did their hearts harden as swiftly as the portrait of their child selves bore a different picture of the man and woman that stepped out of that old and snake-like skin? How did the gap of years between now and not that long ago yank open their eyes to see that grayer tone of world not seen by them as simply as the rights and wrongs we the children know? And these stretched-out lids from these worn-out eyes and sucking in much woe and cries shut out the pure and simple things a father's ideals to guide us, giving us what we would need to walk the world, to move through the world but not surrender to its amnesia that won't grip virtue or the innocence of the years before we grew into these awful creatures. Ah, excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Zachary. And uh, you can really hear the rhythm, too, of um, your formal love of formal poetry in the free verse, which is always something I'm interested in hearing. You can almost hear uh, a formal poet, you know, still being formal in the free verse, which is always fun, fun to listen to. Um, I have another one here too. Sonnet 22, Reflections of Ducks. Do you want to read that too? Yeah, I would like to. This is my sonnet that I wrote for the October Ephrastic Challenge. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, I keep forgetting that I want to have more Ephrastic Challenge on this show too. I I keep meaning to invite the poets that we're publishing and I forget. Um, Okay, let's hear this. Reflections of Ducks. Go ahead. Oh, and let me say before you do uh, that that this picture, if you haven't seen it yet, you can look for last Thursday's poem or Tuesday. The next poem will be coming up that that was one of the winners. But it was um, three ducks or four, I believe, and a sort of family all swimming. They're all sort of lined up but swimming in opposite directions in this photograph. So this is what we're, you know, we're, we're writing a poem about here. So go ahead, Zachary. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, this poem, this whole, like, this entire poem is literally, like, symbolic of the reflections that were in that picture. Uh-huh. I, it actually, to me, is almost like a blend of a pantoum and a sonnet. Like, you'll see some of the lines repeat, like, the last, sta- the last line of every stanza repeats, 
and I did that on purpose for the effect to make it almost feel like the ripples in the pond in that picture. That's very cool. Like it has, it has like now that you point that out, that visual effect of a reflection. That's really neat. I've never seen that before. Yeah, I haven't either. That's why I tried it out. <laughs> um, Sonnet twenty-two. Sonnet twenty-two. Reflections of ducks. Reflections of ducks. Do ducks reflect like we on secret things? They seem as buoyant as the oval smile on their beaks a mask as they make small rings off land, floating with ease over their guile. Off land, floating with ease over their guile, ducks seem with their smile somewhat sinister, underneath morning's dim light for a while, hiding what they'll never administer. Hiding what they'll never administer, I wonder if they wonder about me. As they wander far as the finisterre, farther, keeping dark things guarded, not free. Why do I color in ducks by the lake? Why do I color in ducks by the lake? That is very cool. Sonnet 22, Reflections of Ducks. Thanks for sharing that, Zachary. That was really neat. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on, Tim. Yeah, you too. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And we are coming up on time, but we have time. Let's go to, let's go to Julian Matthews. He sent a poem, too. And then I think I might read uh, a couple of these others, too. Hey, Julian, how you doing today? Hi, I'm okay. Um, so what did you want to share? So I have a longish poem. Oh, it's this called Snake Stories. Snake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I have it up, so go ahead whenever you're ready. Unless you want to introduce it any, anyway. Um, I'll just read it. Okay. Snake stories. My mother had a relationship with a snake. I don't say this lightly or in jest. She really believed in it. Once when I came home to inform her I was getting married, she said the Pamba in Tamil had already visited and told her the news. Similarly, when we were expecting our first child, she already knew the snake had delivered the message. I never questioned it. When I was 13, we lived in a row of terrace houses that had an abandoned area behind which attracted all sorts of creepy crawlies to the extended back kitchen. One day we discovered a black cobra had made its home in a hole next to the drain pipe in mum's kitchen. I remember the drama of coaxing it out with hot water with each of us armed with something, a bat, a broomstick, a chunkle and parang, ready to strike and screaming as it slid out and raised its hooded head and somehow all of us missed the target until my mother stepped in and sliced it clean through. She was always decisive that way, never showed fear, maybe suck it up when I came crying from a fall or a cut and sending me off amid the snot and tears to the medicine cabinet myself. She did hug and show deep affection like most mothers so only when I was little, but I sensed immediately she regretted killing the cobra. She was Hindu by birth and converted to Catholicism when she married dad. The killing of a snake, even watching it being killed, is a bad omen. She must have made amends later, as is the custom to future snakes that showed up. I don't remember her ever killing another, so the snake or snakes that came after must have come, delivered the message, and left in peace. I never knew whether the snake delivered only good news, though. She would never tell us anyway. 
if it were bad news. My mother has passed on for over four years now. The other day, my wife had a vivid dream of her, which she remembered. She said my mom was hugging me tightly, something we rarely did when I was turned around. I wondered then whether there were snakes in heaven and whether one, whether one came to her again, sending us a message through a dream. Maybe it was good news, maybe it was bad. We know mothers and all dogs, as a matter of principle, are sent to heaven when they pass. But what about snakes? Is there a place even for them there too? Years ago, I told the story of Adam and Eve to my children. I thought after the fall that the snake logically had to follow them out of Eden. Who would the snake torment or tempt in paradise by itself? No snake is an island. And I wondered about all the snakes in my life, the reptilian and the two-legged kind, whether it was worth forgiving and reaching out or just moving on without the drama, without the need to assuage and make amends. Maybe it's the uncoiling of these times that has left some of us spiraling into apathy. Less serpent, more servient. Some days I have enough snake in me to swallow me whole. Most days I just want to curl up and be left alone. And then it occurred to me, maybe there was never a snake in my mother's back kitchen after all. She just used the story to remind me that there is a bit of snake in all of us. Sometimes the snake in us makes us hiss, bite, tempt or torment others. Sometimes it can constrict or wind us up. Maybe to move forward, all we need to do is make the choice to shed old skins and be remade anew. Maybe the snake is just here to be the bearer of the message, the lesson from all this death and dying. And like my mother, we need to make peace with it and let it go. Maybe we just need to listen to the sound of our own rattle and find our way back to Eden and never ever again Kill the messenger. That was a beautiful poem. Um, very touching and a great reading of it, too. Thanks so much for sharing that, Julian. That was just outstanding. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah, very moving. I appreciate it. Have a good night or good day, I guess. That was uh, Julian Matthews with Snake Stories. Um, uh, really quickly, here is the um, Saiku for this week. And. Um, what was the story? I don't even remember what it. Oh yeah, so this was an interesting story that I found. Um, you know, the the rise of allergies is always interesting to me because it seems just we shouldn't be having allergies um, at the levels that we do. It's just not. It's not right. And there's an interesting study here out of the University of Helsinki about a puppy's diet. And I probably can't fit it all on screen, um, but a puppy's diet. Um, seems to be a significant factor in the development of allergy and atopia-related skin symptoms. And so what they found is they compared um, whether or not puppies got to eat raw food when they were puppies. And if they ate at least um, 20% of their diet was raw food, like animals that they killed themselves or just raw meat that their owners had given them, they ended up not having allergies. Whereas the dogs that had um, ate you know, ate dog food their whole lives, ended up developing allergies at a much higher rate. So there's something about that eating and, and you know, the, having that whole biome that, that produces allergies. And, and that just sort of, I don't know, lends a, you know, a, that's probably what's happening with humans is that we don't have the right gut biome because we aren't exposed to the right things anymore. And that's what's causing our allergies. So that was the, uh, the article that inspired this little psyche. And uh, this is a true story that happens every time I take my dog for a walk. We already mentioned him with a rattlesnake training. Um, 
but he always finds something in the bushes. But here is um, our dog with some raw meat, a Saiku. Bounding from the bush, a mule deer's leg in his mouth. Bounding from the bush, a mule deer's leg in his mouth. That is my Saiku for this week. And that is the show for today. I'm glad you could join us. It's, it's been a, a great one, a long one full of excellent poems. Um, you know, David Kirby, um, the first two poets um, with that wonderful Poet Respond poem, great open lines poems. Really glad you could join us for this. It's been a lot of fun. And next week's guest is going to be Tashani Doshi, who is just an amazing poet. I mean, she is like the real deal. You, um, if you're a subscriber, you have the interview with her in Rattle Number 73, the fall issue um, she's an Indian poet. She is in uh, Dubai right now. So we're going to catch her while she has good internet there um, before she goes back to India later in the month. And her new book, A God at the Door, is out from Copper Canyon Press here in the United States. It just came out. I just got my copy here. It's a wonderful book. Um, just a wonderful soul and fascinating person is Tashani Doshi. And it's at the new time. Um, I know we switched times um, about six months ago to Sundays. I'm going to switch one more time. I promise I think this is the best time. So we're going to make it noon Eastern from now on. And that way we can just reach the most people because most people live. Because look, just looking at the time zones and the, and the different, you know, going over different times at different months and the different times we've had alternate times, um, you just have the most live viewers on the shows that are 9 a.m. for me here on the West Coast because then it covers the whole... It covers Europe. People haven't gone to bed yet. And even in India, people haven't gone to bed yet. So you can have the most people live. It seems like the most convenient time. And I think it's going to be a good time that we're just going to stick with. So that is the new time. Noon Eastern time. 9 a.m. Pacific. Sorry to switch it. Hopefully it's the last switch. But with Tashani Doshi. And oh yeah, and the prompt. Um, For the prompt for this uh, episode coming up, um, Megan ran out of prompts and I forgot to tell her. So I had to get a one really quick myself and um in the book um what was it the david curry book the knowledge he mentions poets trying to coin words which has made me think of a prompt right here this is next week's prompt coin a word then write a poem with your word as the title so make up your own word and then it can mean whatever you want it to mean it's your own word but coin a word and then make that word the title of your poem that's next week's prompt and once again next week's guest is going to be tishani doshi Um, Really looking forward to this episode, and I hope to see you then. In the meantime, hope you have a great week. Good night.